Hey you! We've got our special live recording episode of World Building for Masochists that we took at Worldcon in Chicago. It was an absolute delight to do and we had a wonderful crowd and we're thrilled to share it with you. And of course we're so grateful that we got to be there together and go to the Hugos as nominees, which we couldn't have done it without you and your support. We're excited to keep going with brand new episodes and exciting guest stars, which we'll tell you about soon. But for now, on with the show. I'm going to hit record. That's what we're doing. Hey, there we go. New recording started. All right, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon um, here at the World Building for Masochists live recording. And I don't think I need to read this description because it's on the tin. Um, But I think that we would like to um, introduce ourselves to you. And should we do our traditional opening before doing so? Let's say the thing. You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and it managed to get us all the way to the Hugos. So I say we keep doing it. (laughs) Aw, thank you. Oh, I feel so warm and fuzzy. Yay. So we we are your hosts. Um, I'm Rowena Miller. This is Cass Morris and Marshall Ryan Maresca. Marshall, will you lead off telling us a little bit about yourself and your work for those who might not be familiar with you? Sure. My name is Marshall Ryan Maresca. I am primarily a fantasy author. Um, most of my work falls under the wide umbrella of the Meridian Saga, which is four plus different series that are that weave together into a larger saga. And then on top, I, I'm not going to list titles because there's so many. Um, we only have an hour, Marshall. We only have. <laughs> um, there, there are many, many titles, starting with the Thorn of Denton Hill, and then. Look it up in there. And then I also have a diesel punk fantasy filled with motorcycles and psychic mushrooms and pansexual glory and tacos. And it is called The Velocity of Revolution. Awesome. It's really good. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm big fans of both these people. Um, and I'm Cass Morris. I write The Oven Cycle, which is historical fantasy set in an alternate ancient Rome. I gave them magic to see what they would do with it. And it was wonderful and terrible things. Um, and as, as you who were here before we started recording heard, the other half of my life is also about story uh, because I work for a mythology-themed summer camp, and I used to be a Shakespeare scholar, so there's just all kinds of different meshes of story and history and mythology and all those things swirling in my brain all the time. Yay! Um, I'm Rowena Miller. I um, wrote the Unrivaled Kingdom trilogy, which is Torn, Frey, and Rule. Um, set in kind of an alt 18th century age of revolutions um, with sewing magic. And the forthcoming Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, which is out sometime this spring, because dates are all in flux in publishing right now. Um, And that is a um, historical fantasy set in kind of turn of the century rural Midwest, but there are fairies and you can make bargains with them. And of course, people immediately make really smart choices, right? (laughs) Um, Nothing but smart choices. Nothing but smart choices. Only wise choices. Um, So speaking of making choices, I thought that we could um, choose not presume our favorite tagline and talk a little bit about um, within the worlds that we have built for what we write. Um, What is like your 
favorite or an interesting or like just a choice tidbit of world building. And this is actually something we, when we have a guest on the podcast, we always ask them to leave us with a tidbit for the world that we're building live on air together. So those like juicy tidbits of this is some good trivia. So what is some good, a good piece of juicy tidbit trivia from your world that you have built? So I'm, I'm going to go with the within the velocity of revolution, where um, one of the things I really had a lot of fun doing because I, I built this culture where in the culture, like actual, actual like motorcycle racing has become like a cultural thing, but I wanted to tie that to something deeper within the culture, something older. Um, so I did create this sort of like whole origin myth to tie together everything with like the magic of the mushrooms that lets people interconnect their minds to each other and how that works better when you're going faster. And on top of that, the country is an oil-rich country where, and thus they're being colonized because other people want to take their oil. So I created this whole origin story you know this. You know how they, how the world was made. That is deep in their culture. That most of the people have forgotten because their culture is being oppressed. Because again, colonizers. Where you know my main characters first hear this story ever, when they're being told this. You know about two thirds through the book, of that there are like these five sisters who all cried into the ocean and and made the world, and each of them gave the gave their these people a gift, and the last gift was a mystery in that the mystery will become apparent later and give them the gift of speed. And that is, that is the oil that is in the ground. Oh. I like it. Um, I think I'm going to go with the prohibition of Mars, which is just a fun phrase. I, I just enjoy <laughs> that phrase. Um, but it is a standard to, to which magic is held, essentially, in that it is not part of battle that the idea within the within the society is that mars prizes warriors mars prizes the physical mortal flesh and the act of swordsmanship and of strategy and things like that and so he bans magic from the battlefield and there are legends in event in history of people who tried to use magic offensively because um, it's a world where there's elemental magic so you can you can do things like try to call up a gust of wind or things like that and it backfired on them massively. And the reason they decide for this is that Mars disapproves. Father Mars does not want us doing this, and so it keeps magic from the battlefield. I did this as a writer because I did not feel like figuring out how to work magic into the Roman legions, <laughs> upon which Avin is, the Aventon legions are based. And I was like, that seems like a lot of work I don't feel like doing right now. But then I created different problems for myself. Um, but fun problems, fun plot problems, like what do the legions do when they encounter another culture who does not have this prohibition? They've fought essentially the Greek analog in the past who have the same prohibition. They just call it the prohibition of Ares instead of Mars. But when they start fighting other peoples who do use magic on the battlefield, like then we start asking questions. Can I use, can I use defensive? Can I enchant my shield? Now, that didn't seem to piss Mars off. Okay, let's see, can I enchant my boots? Can I enchant my weapon? Oh, I don't like it if I enchant my weapon. That broke right there, okay. <laughs> so the society has been through a series of testing the limits of this prohibition, essentially. And it happens a couple times in the books as well, where they start sort of pushing to see like, all right, let's, let's see what makes this god angry. 
If he doesn't make him angry, let's do it again. <laughs> if it makes him angry, let's definitely not do it again. That's science. Yes. yes. <laughs> We are, we are an empirical people, and we will find the data, yes. Um, I would say for mine, one of the things that I um, really loved, including in the Unrivaled Kingdom trilogy, was um, in Galatha, they have street food in the cities. And this is actually something that like my editor kind of like pushed back on, because when we think of like eating out, we often think of it as being something that you do with disposable income. Right. If you don't have money to spend, you eat at home. If you have some money to spend, you eat out. But in a lot of places, historically, people didn't have proper kitchens. So I imagine that most of the living in Galatha was like apartment, row house kind of living, that people had coal stoves or, you know, stoves that are pretty much intended to heat your house. They're not great for cooking. So how do you solve this problem? Well, people are selling cheap readily available food on the street. And this was historically common across many different cultures, including the Romans had fast food. Um, so having this kind of culture of there are street barkers basically selling their wares out on the street, people are kind of bumping into each other, meeting, you know, buying someone a sausage on a stick because that's what, you know, Hans has this week. Um, so I wanted to in include that kind of as a, a nod to a historical reality, but also to kind of give my characters another place to run into each other, to add some flavor to, huh, flavor, to add some flavor to the street, to the culture. Um, so that was probably my favorite little tasty tidbit. So my question, and you guys kind of covered this a little bit, but then a question that I have for you in, in getting to that place where you can have that cool little piece of trivia, what did you have to know about your world already to even be able to get there? I had to know that they had an army, that they had a, a standing army, essentially. I had to know that they had their gods, which gods they had. I had to know that magic is usually seen as being a blessing of the gods. And then I had to decide there was a god who did not participate in all that, which is fun because I feel like that's a thing that can have, and I actually haven't like written these myths out, but I am sure that Avin has myths about Mars that we don't have in our world that address this prohibition specifically, that have like their mythic origins and things. I have to know how the magic works. I have to know that magic can be used offensively or defensively, different ways that the elements can manifest that could perhaps be useful in a battle. And then I have to know how their system of using magic is different from other cultures and how they use magic. I have to know the history of what enemies this nation has faced over time and when they've had to adapt to which other circumstances. So yeah, it touches a yes. lot. It touches a lot of <laughs> well, different one thing, things. One thing it's interesting too is that there's a question of, would you have to decide that the gods are real and participate? Or do you just have to decide that the people believe that? I decided early on that the gods were not going to make appearances in, in the books. And therefore, that question actually becomes a little bit moot for me. Because as far as the characters are concerned, it's absolutely real. Um, and this is absolutely how things work. There's another, uh, there's something I thought I was about to chase down about that. Like, um, Nope, lost it. Whatever no, the blacksmithing happening next door. Yeah, the black, yeah, that's okay. Clanged me right. This is the, these are the parts we usually edit out. Yeah. <laughs> when I get distracted by something and lose a thought midway through. Or when our neighbors are blacksmithing, which doesn't and happen not, often. Yeah, but, but. non-zero number of times. Non-zero yeah. number of times. Um, for me, it was definitely like a process of working backwards, of like knowing, knowing what I wanted the you know the culture of Zia part to be, especially since the idea that for the lower castes who the story is focusing on, gas and f for their motorcycles is extremely rationed. So the idea of like, we're gonna have a race, like 
And that's like, that sounds dumb if you, you know, <laughs> why are you having a race if you barely have any gas to begin with? And so I wanted the idea of racing to be, have this very deep cultural sensitive, even if they had lost the A to B to C in the mythology of why that is. And then going backwards from there of working out then what was that mythology and what, what was it that that drives them to want to go fast, even if they don't necessarily remember the older myths of how that connects to the mushrooms and how that connects to to things. So, and I in included things like um, if you, if you've ever like been to 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 like Aztec ruins or Mayan ruins, where um, in, in Mexico there I think they're called the voladores. I may have mangled that, but it's these tall poles and they will climb up and like they will fly off the pole and then then you know be going down in, in, in a spiral so I incorporated that into their old mythology that that was a thing they would do to go fast because that was like you know that way you can like you're falling with style <laughs> <laughs> and and then had that be a lost thing so that like later when you're in front of one of their old churches, there's still a pole that now the colonizers like use to like put propaganda messages on and they're like, but that's what the origin of the pole was. So that so doing all those things with that origin, you know, their their origin myth story all tied into all the little things that I already set up in the world that I needed for for the story. Yeah. To so give like, that weight. Like you have that like, what is the reason for this? And oh hey. Now I have a reason for doing yeah, it. Yeah, People are doing it for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had I had to know. Like, first of all, the city is big enough to support this kind of economic activity that I was dealing with. A and like by my my real world analog, I was looking at the 18th century and 18th century cities. They actually, I mean, they were pretty big. Even earlier than that, cities could get pretty big. Um, but the idea is they're big enough that there are multiple neighborhoods and things like that. Um, and I had to understand the technology level of the time, too, that we are not working with like open fireplaces anymore. We have these stoves that people are using. And I think the idea, too, of um, that there is still a part of people's living that is communal. Even though people have their own homes that they're living in, you're still participating in living that is going out into the streets that you know your neighbors, that you're kind of working in your world that way so i mean like we kind of know where we come from and we also like we have reasons for picking the things that we choose to convey things to the audience as well yeah and like you know i wanted to convey those elements to the audience i wanted to convey the element of you know part of it was just wanting the aesthetic and the you know the color of street culture um, which is so huge in many places historically um, and still is really huge in many places today. Um, but unless you convey that in ways that people are engaging with that culture, you're not going to read it into the book. Did you find that you were trying to convey anything specific to your reader? Yeah, it definitely speaks to the intersection of magic and power and the power structures and systems within Avon, which also have a uh, legal connotation as well. So there's a, a legalistic side to um, what you can do if you are a, a person who can use magic. And you can only ascend so high in their political structure. You could join the army, but you can't use your magic there. You can't, you can't use it offensively. So it definitely speaks to something that I'm investigating in a lot of ways about this ability that some people in society have and how it can 
both give them power, but also block them from certain routes of, of attaining power. I mean, at this point, I feel like I'm repeating the answer. That's, that's okay. Saying, that's okay. Of, because, because motorcycle races. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting, too, because you convey so much about where these people are at in terms of being colonized. Yeah. yeah. With the idea of having an origin story that's been mostly forgotten and having having a myth that people don't know anymore. Yeah. Because there's there's another force acting on what they understand. Yeah, yeah it says a lot. Something else defining their story for them. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. external to themselves. Just I know I thought that was very cool. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we often talk about the things that we love about world building and we really celebrate that, but I feel like we're here and maybe we can confess as well, especially thinking about the project that you're, you're talking about, what you've already written or things you're working on. What is something that you like absolutely hated or did not want to do in your world building or that tripped you up and made you curse that you ever started building that world, even if only for a few minutes? I don't like when I have to do math. <laughs> When the world building starts to involve too much math, I get sad because I'm not good at it. And this is why I stay away from things like giving a planet multiple moons and having to figure out the tides and stuff in relation to that, or even just like in Marshalls, like which moons are full at which times. I'm like, that seems like a lot of counting. <laughs> that seems like an awful lot of like charts, yeah. charts and spreadsheets. It's what the and... spreadsheets are for. <laughs> I know, but then when I move a scene so that it takes place in a different month, then everything changes. Yes, and, and then, then I have oh. to refix all those things, and that just. And the editing is just yeah. evil. Yes. Not, that gets less fun. Yes. <laughs> Architecture is the thing that always trips me up really? the most. In that, I don't, I, I do not have the language to express mm-hmm. what I want to express in a way that feels right, especially in terms of so much of at least the architecture language I even know is so very culturally centered. Yes. And so I often feel like when I use a specific term, as far as like describing a building, that. That like shows shows your hand more of like where you're trying to file the serial numbers off of, like that shows the serial number that you were filing that you failed to file off more, and it's I think that's partly just because I don't that is an area of of life that I am not particularly yeah. versed in, and research is not made any easier for me as of yet. So you end up it, you end up drilling down a lot into like. The, the geometry, yeah. like the, yeah. the shapes, which then feels this very like it was a very spiky building. <laughs> the square was the, the thing on top what, of the square, and, yeah. and often I feel like unless you're writing a point of view of a character who is in a new place, yeah, like odds are the person who has lived in the city for their entire life is not going to be noting the architecture because. But when I want to be like expressing what I have in my head to the audience so they understand what it's supposed to look like, that's where that's where language tends to fail me sometimes. Well, and I think it is, you're right, that that's one of those spots that any vocabulary that we do have tends to be very culturally loaded. Yes. That I don't know how I, I mean, I can try to describe an onion dome, but if I say the word onion dome, you immediately have a connotation of what that looks like, which is good, but you also have a really immediate, like, other cultural baggage. So Eastern European, right? Yes, Eastern European, like, you're just... 
is, 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 a, is a, you know, red square. No, I wasn't doing red square. Um, <laughs> so I think that that is hard. There are other things we describe that don't, that the vocabulary is not as culturally loaded. Right. I, think, I think clothing, clothing, clothing ends up in that area sometimes too, too, because yeah. certain types of dress we associate with certain cultures and, and that can be tricky too, to, to try to describe, you know, a particular kind of like tunic length garments yes. without using yes if you use the word even the word tunic the or, yeah. or the word kaftan like you have an immediate association that may not be at all what, what we're trying to yeah. express or do with, with, with all those you can do a certain amount of like you know world building bullshit where you you know <laughs> you just like name like the cut of that dress after a city on you know yeah, across the right. world yes. but then that doesn't give any visual pop to your reader to understand what the heck that means other than it means something to the point of view character yeah but these are the choices we have to torture ourselves the- <laughs> with because what do you do what do you do with that um i think for me the thing that i hate most is also math related <laughs> i because and it's like I want to get it right, you know? It's like I want the reader to trust what I am saying and to follow along with what I'm saying. And so if I'm making a claim that this journey is going to take a month, like that really should be at least like ballpark correct. So when I find myself like getting my map out and like working out, okay, so one inch on my map equals this many miles and I'm gonna measure and then these things and then- I know, but it's uphill. And now I have to Google how long it would take for a fully laden swallow to go, oh crap, African or European. So I mean, so that's the part that I I hate. And it's more like, it's at the point that I have written myself. It's not the world building itself, it's dealing with the consequences of my choices. (laughs) And then I have to go through and actually do the thing that I was thinking about and yeah, I'm never again writing anything where an army has to move across land. Because, <laughs> that's the worst. Man, the number of times I set traps for myself and then fell face first into them taught with, with timing and things like that. It's like, oh, that was, those were poor choices. Well, and it is, it's hard to, it's not even hard on just the drafting and the figuring it out, but then in the whole process of writing, you hit a point where you're going to edit the thing. And then you make this change that should be really minor. It's like, well, I'm just going to shift that by a week. That won't be a problem. And like, oh, crap. Well, unfortunately, now the army can't get there in time, and the moon's in the wrong cycle, and so the spell won't work. The autumn storms have started, and it just becomes a whole mess. And I created this mess. And then you have the the external problem. If if you've got more than one plot line moving, but perhaps in different places, and maybe one of them's stationary and the other one is mobile, then you have to think about not just the distance and time that it takes your characters, but like balancing your plot lines and the pacing of your narrative become a different consideration. And it's like, okay, we either don't go to these characters for the like three weeks that they're traveling across the plateau, or I have to find something interesting for them to do. Right. <laughs> something has to happen to them. These are the moments when like- Midway through the plateau so that I have something to break up this other plot. Like, uh. the, the, the emotional conversation might have to happen yeah. somewhere within the three weeks that they are stuck in a ship in the middle of nowhere because- <laughs> I need a otherwise. Why, why were you on a ship for three weeks and never had and, and waited to <laughs> wait until you made landfall to have this important talk? Because water it was just that awkward Marshall. all the time. Because water scares me and I couldn't find the words. We've talked about this. <laughs> because we were trapped on a tiny ship and I was afraid that if you were mad, I'm not going to start the awkward conversation now when there's no way to run. So. We have to we have to live with each other for the next three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch the microphones, Marshall. <laughs> that includes your head. Okay. <laughs> well, I think we wanted to leave a lot of time yes. for um, questions from the audience. 
So um, I would kind of like to turn it over to you all, and we'll try to get to as many of you as possible. So first up. Question for Cass Morris. Oh, God. Did your legionnaires use magic to uh, purify drinking water or heal wounds or preserve food or non-battle? That's an excellent question. That's a great question. I'm going to repeat the questions as they come in, if that's okay, just so everyone can hear and it's on the recording. Great question about whether or not Cass's legionnaires were allowed or did things that were non-martial, like purifying water, healing wounds, things like that? The answer is yes, sometimes. Um, and this is something that I, I made a little bit of a personal choice of certain generals, honestly, like who they decide to bring with them on campaign, who they want to pay. Because if you have magical ability in this society, you get paid for your work. So it's like, do I have the money that I want to spend on these other things. Healers are fairly common, um, and the healing isn't just like wave a magic wand you, and your arms back on, but it is things like preventing infection especially, um, using purification for, for those sorts of reasons. Um, in the books, my, my male protagonist, Sempronius, shells out the extra expense to get a, um, a air mage who can use birds for messaging in a more uh, efficient way than birds can traditionally be used for, for messaging, where you sort of have to like go home post to home post and things like that. The air mage can sort of direct them faster and, and more in a more focused way, because he wants to be able to get messages back to Avin fast, even within storm seasons and things like that. So he makes that choice to pay for that, to bring that along with him. But that is the constraint often, is like, what can you afford? Another character talks about how, yeah, I guess it's fine to have your shield blessed or whatever, but really you want your boots blessed because you're going to be walking, like I said, across the continent so you get an earth mage to make those shoes comfy. Uh, so things like that. So they, they can use them in auxiliary capacity, I guess is what we would call it. Healing being the most common, but some other little things along the ways as well. Mostly Mars seems to be offended by offensive magic. That was a bad sentence. Offended by offensive magic? That was, it's, he's perturbed by offensive magic. There we go. Uh, yeah, over here. Yeah, so uh, most worlds, when you're world building, start with a seed. So some idea or something that you saw that just kicked off, kicks off an explosion. So what was it for you all? Okay, so the question is um, about a lot of worlds start out with like a seed of an idea, a little kernel of an idea, but then sets off this grand experiment <laughs> that we do. So what were our kernels or seeds or fire starters for those explosions of ideas? I mean, it can, it can really vary from project to project. Um, I mean, I, one of the things I like to talk about is you can is the different ways one jumps into starting world, but whether you're starting you know, from the ground up and just like building, first make a map and then figure out because of the map, therefore these are swamp people, therefore because there are swamp people, the castle will fall down or what have you. Um, or you start out with just one you know, big idea and work your way out from that. Um, and it can, I mean, it can vary so much from project to project. With, like with Velocity, I started with the idea that I wanted it to be a diesel punk technology story. And so from there, I then built out like, okay, if this, like, what, will, what does the city have to look like that traveling around by motorcycle is the most efficient thing to do. So therefore, it's got a lot of up and down hills and it's very windy curves and things like that. And and so that that was one of the big seeds for that, was this is what I want the story to look like. 
we've, we've talked about this before too. The world building by aesthetic is you like you just have this idea of this is what it looks like, and then therefore everything you have to do to make it to make it be that. That's that's exactly where most of my projects start is with some central image, and for the oven cycle, it actually is a specific painting. Um, Lawrence Almatadema's The Baths of Caracalla, which is a neoclassical nonsense painting. They're beautiful. They're not realistic, but I love them anyway. Um, and this one in particular, the backdrop is it's, it's, the, it's the Baths of Caracalla, which are a later period that I'm writing in, but whatever, it's fine. Gorgeous Roman baths, and in the forefront are these three women sitting on a bench. And one of them sort of just lolling back, and another one is like leaning over the arm, like, I've got some tea that I'm dropping <laughs> for you right now. Like, that you could see that on her face, like, I am dishing out. And the, one, the third one on the other side is kind of like nervously listening, like, I shouldn't be listening to this, but I'm listening to this. And that was where the Vitellii came from. My, my three sisters that are sort of the core of the story were born from looking at that image. And then I knew I wanted to create a Roman world and add magic to it and built out from there. For another project I'm working on right now, the idea came, a lot of my ideas come from history very often um, because I spend my life living in history. And I got a very strong image of my central character on the stage of an early modern playhouse, which is from my Shakespearean background. You know, I have, got deep, deep roots there, but I got an image of a character in the space with the magic in that space and then have been making decisions to support that world. So yeah, making decisions that support what I see in my head is, is where a lot of it starts. That's the kernel. Mm -hmm. And then research takes you other directions and it builds from there. Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's that element of like, I ask myself, what if? So for the Unrival Kingdom, it was what if you could sew magic into clothes? And then even beyond that, I was at the time, because I'm a dork, researching um, a particular 18th century garment called a caraco. It's a jacket. It was French origin. Um, and they were made in multiple different styles. And they just exploded in creativity in terms of all these different styles of this jacket um, right around the same time as the French Revolution. And I was like, so what, like, what were these women designing these, I mean, over-the-top, bizarre cool jackets like what did they think about what was going on around them and then if they could influence what was happening around them what would they do how would they use that influence and so then i had to build a whole world around that like what if that idea and so it kind of combines like there's a i have a character in mind i have a what if question answer and i have some agency that i want them to have within that world so what does that world look like that they can can engage with and then similarly, honestly, with, with the forthcoming book, that it's, you know, what if fairies are real and what if people could bargain with them and what if there was a whole folk tradition built around that and then I inserted that into, say, like, 1908 semi-rural agrarian, like, Indiana, Illinois. Like, what, how would that work? Who, who would participate? Who wouldn't participate? What would it look like? And then, again, from there, right? <laughs> I saw some more hands. Who else was? Hey, was oh. So you all write at very different technology levels and different kind of time periods. So when you start working on a story, how do you determine what technology level is best for that story? Okay, good question. Ooh. So um, pointing out that we all write at very different technology levels, um, inspired by different time periods. So how do we decide what technology level is going to work for the story that we want to tell? I mean, I cheated. Because. <laughs> <laughs> late Republic, Rome had, you know, I knew what that was, but thinking about, and, and early modern England, which is what the other one is inspired by, if not directly based on, similar. I think it, to me, it blends with the aesthetic. Right. What, what kinds of 
tools and technology create the look? Um, is it oil lamp lighting? Is it natural lighting? Is it uh, electricity lighting? How do people get around? Like, yeah, what feeds into all that? Uh, for me, I think also a big part of it is like, what problems do I not want to worry about to solve? <laughs> That's like, a good one. In all the Meridate books, like they, they have indoor plumbing because that was a thing. I was just like, you know what? I, I just yeah. want there to be bathrooms. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> we we always just, talk about shoes don't presume and, and choosing sanitation. Because <laughs> I just didn't want to deal with... Because you know, I, I remember actually like early on when I was, when I was writing, I was thinking about... Um, in Neil Stevenson's The Baroque Cycle, there, there, there actually is like a whole plot point of like how they arrange a jailbreak, and part of it is there's outhouses right outside the jail, and like all the people in on it like make a point to like overflow, overuse those outhouses so that it overflows. And I'm like, that's, that's neat. Don't want to deal with that. No. It's <laughs> also the plot of Finding Nemo. Yes, that's <laughs> what they do. All it trains is. lead to the sea. They, they, that they, when they break the filter, it, the, it, yeah, that's how they get out, is by filling their tank with poop, poop, poop. But it was, it, it was a great inspiration of like, here's a thing I don't want to have to deal with. So mm -hmm. let's... Let's, let's just let's give just them. Not. Let's just give them bathrooms. Sometimes yeah. world building is subtraction. Yes. Why yes. <laughs> yes. not want? Why not want? Um, and I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes the story can only happen at that historical juncture, moment, or that technology level. Um, and for the the forthcoming book, one of the things that it it needed to be at that turn of the century moment was for those of you who know your your fairy folklore. What what do fairies not like? Iron. 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 What is happening at, from the turn of the century into the early 20th century? We're building things up so much. So one thing that becomes central to um, the fame part of this world is that they're getting hemmed in because they can't travel the way they used to because there's too much iron. The, the places where the veil is thin and they used to be able to cross are getting poisoned by all of the steel that we are laying as railroad tracks and all of the buildings that now have steel beams inside. Yeah. And so there's this kind of point at the beginning that um, you know that the, the old river ways, because that used to be the, the trade systems for the Midwest was you moved through the rivers and this is being replaced and has been at this point replaced with rail. Um, so sometimes there's like a reason it's like, well, this tech level has to exist there. And so I'm like finding myself like looking up before I started writing. Okay, so when did steel beamed buildings become relatively common in middling sized Midwestern cities? Like when did that happen? When, when were the first railroad tracks laid? When were they still laying them? And it's actually really funny. I, I had the best copy editor and I can see her going through and she keeps making notes about like, so you're saying they have this, so it has to be post-1901. Oh, they've built the dome at West Baden in Southern Indiana, it has to be post-1904. Like it was just, it was, it was brilliant. It was like, yes, exactly. That's exactly why I did it that way. It was because it had to be like at that point where, where the iron is encroaching. And I think even in a secondary world, finding that point can be really fun for finding your plot hooks that attach to your world building. I'm thinking of C.L. Polk's uh, Witch Mark. Yeah. And yeah. the way that the electricity analog in that is deeply tied to the magic and the story and, and spoilery things that I won't say. Um, go read it and you'll see how the tech drives that story. And anytime your world building can give you plot hooks, I think that is excellent. <laughs> it, yes. makes, it makes the world building load bearing rather than just Dressing. wall decoration. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, goodness. Lots of hands. Um, how about right here with the 
I'm just interested in your individual sweet spots. You've got a spectrum <laughs> between, like, let's set up the rules of magic and see what we are inspired by, by those rules, or I want this effect, so I'm going to design my rules of magic to get that effect. Mm -hmm. And there's, most of you are going to fall somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, between on that spectrum, how would you describe yourselves? All right, so we're describing a spectrum of intentionality in, in developing a magical system that they're running from, I am going to design all the rules and then I'm going to follow them to, I want this effect in my writing and so I'm going to develop the rules to get there. Um, and where do we fall along that spectrum? Um, uh, I, I'm definitely in the define the rules by what I what I'm going to need for the story and then use that and then find like oh I, I accidentally set up a trap for myself by doing that <laughs> but still I, I, it does happen. I, I need the magic to work the way it needs to work for the story to work and it's not I, not that I need to bend the story to fit some arbitrary magic system that I designed first so that's I mean that's always the biggest thing is is making sure it fits the needs you have for how the how the story needs to work because that's that's what you need to serve first and foremost. Although sometimes I have to do a lot of world building before I figure out what the story is. So then sometimes finding that story is a process of building up the world and how the magic system works, and then being like, oh, that means yeah. that means I can that means all the plot hooky things that I can find. And, yeah, I plot comes late for me in the process. <laughs> um, I, I tend to start with my, my world and my aesthetic. I've referred to it before as like my dollhouse, and I get dolls at the same time, and I see which dolls crash into each other in interesting ways and make story. And so when it comes to the magic systems, I have usually started with the system first before I necessarily know how it fits into the plot. With the Oven Cycle, I knew I wanted this elemental system. Another project that sort of keeps getting backburnered is based on star magic. And I knew I wanted the star magic to work in certain ways. And what I like about doing that is that it forces, it forces a paradigm on my characters and on the choices they can make because I have already set these rules for them and for their universe. Does that mean they are absolutely fixed in stone? No. Have I sometimes retconned things that like, it wasn't explicitly stated one way in, in, in the first book, but I may have tweaked my interpretation of it slightly for the second to get myself out of a hole. Yeah, yeah, I do that. And then the, the Shakespeare-inspired project that I'm working on is not quite as far in that direction. It is more towards the other side of the, of the scale where I want this effect, and I'm trying to figure out how to make the magic work to support that effect. And I think that might be because the primary character in that story isn't herself a mage. She is more acted upon by the magic than acting it. And so maybe I'm just approaching it from a different angle because of the character. I hadn't actually traced, I hadn't chased that particular thought down. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to noodle on that one some more. Yeah. Um, I think because I start with a what if question, and the what if question usually involves magic in some way, like I know that this is gonna be the ultimate effect that I'm, I am going for, especially, again, the character. This character is going to have agency in the story because of or relating to magic, ergo, therefore, it has to work in a way that is going to let them do that. Because of my chaotic and um, not at all organized way of drafting, Yay! Um, <laughs> I often have to write some of this stuff out, and so as I write, I'm writing the rules into it. And, and so it's kind of like I'll, I will... I will get to the point that I put my character in a situation 
And then I'm deciding, well, does the magic work here or not? Can they do that? What limits am I going to? So the kind of early experimental draft that I'm writing is pushing on those questions and is answering those questions. And then once I've gotten to that point, now now I I usually don't retcon too much because I like, I, I find that there's opportunity in limits. Um, especially for story, that you you put a limit on someone and you say the magic doesn't work that way, you can't do that, or that's you know against the rules in this way or, or that way. Well, now you have to have a creative solution to work around that. And so, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a push and pull that I know where I'm going to end up, but as I write toward that, I'm imposing limits on myself and creating the the rule book as I go. Yeah, uh, how about right here in the yellow mask? And the headphones. Yeah. Spin. Spin. Yeah. You. Yep. Spin. yeah. Uh, do you, uh, like, when you want to convey, like, a central emotional theme or a character motivation, do you structure the world around that, or do you structure that around the world? Ooh. Ooh. I like that question. So when there is a central, like, emotional resonance or theme um, that we, we, are we structuring the world around that, or does that kind of result out of the world? Is that... So for me, I think it's usually structure the world around that, and but that takes a very specific form. Um, for one of the new projects that I've been noodling on, and still the world building of it is still very nascent and and underrisen, and so I'm still doing a lot of that work. I realized I needed for different sorts of things. I needed to make sure I use very specific terms, and that the terms did not intermingle. And so I think a lot of that comes from. You know, if you have that very specific theme, you need to know what are the precise words that tie into that theme. And I think that is a crucial part of the world building to keep it all feel thematically on point. In Velocity Revol Revolution, I did have one moment where I realized I had made a critical error in, along those lines, where I had made the terms that they were using for, since marriage wasn't really a thing, but the closest thing they had to marriage, that and the term for being arrested, the same word. And I'm like, that is not what I want to convey. I need to change that. It's like literally the old ball and chain that you had done there. Yeah. Like, Those should not be the same term. So let's, let's fix mean, that. Think about, I mean, we talk about like a bond, you know, that's... That yeah, both both were ready, yeah. both were being bound, and I'm like, yeah. Mm, yeah. not, but not what I wanted yeah. to convey. So therefore, I have to fix that. Yeah. I think so often my, my themes are about power dynamics and, and agency. And that is to me so deeply entwined with the idea of magic and, and what it, what it can, can help people perform, where it gives you both affordances and constraints that I don't think of them as developing separately. It, it all happens in a mush for me because that emotional power, that agency is so deeply tied to what the magic system is, and, and that's the, the huge part of the world building very often. So that's where it all fits together for me. I'm trying to think about like other non-magic parts of the world building that have emotional resonance. And to me, that's often ends up being about um, family dynamics and relationship dynamics and friendship dynamics, how people relate to each other. And that arises usually from the characters themselves and how they're colliding into each other, like I mentioned before. But I don't, I don't tend to separate the processes out in my mind that much yeah. now. Yeah, I don't, I, and for me too, I know what I'm going to write about, but many times, um, many core themes actually arise for me while I'm writing. I didn't know I was going to be writing that story until I wrote it, and actually, one of the major themes that I realized after finishing 
the forthcoming book was like the idea of people like moving on without you and being left behind in that tension. And I like did not, I didn't, didn't really intend for that to be, but I was like, yeah, so like a world that's about like, you know, the real world and the fae world. And if you go there, you can't like come back and like, okay, yeah, that's a theme. Yeah. That, that those go together. Well, how did I not see that until I finished this draft? What the, yeah. Sometimes I think that, um, by the time you see our final product, we seem smarter than we are. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I like when an editor has to point it out to me. Yeah. Like, oh, I really love what you're doing with this theme and how these two characters mirror each other. And I'm like, yeah, that was totally intentional. Yes. <laughs> you're right. I'm going to do more of that That's, to make it better. Mm-hmm. That's how smart I am. Yep, I did, I did that on purpose. <laughs> what? But yeah, so, so it is. It, it's like this weird tension between, like, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily writing toward... Exactly. I know some of the emotional resonance that I'm trying to get toward, but not all of it yet. And so it's a matter of discovery. And sometimes the world itself does lend itself to that discovery. Yeah, good question. Okay, goodness. Uh, but right here in the purple mask. Okay, so this is kind of the inverse of what you've been describing. Uh, what would be an example of like a work by someone else, regardless of medium book, TV show, movie, where they have not considered some implication or unintended consequences. Oh. <laughs> we were just talking about you, this. You want, oh us to, you want us to drop the T. Okay. All right. So, um, oh, so the, the, the question is, what, what is feelings? an example yeah. of a work, not uh, not necessarily our own, um, any kind of medium that did not consider the implications of the world building that they did, and there are consequences that are um, perhaps unintended or unforeseen, and, and we as savvy readers, consumers of media, perhaps notice <laughs> okay so so to, so to not be mean i'm gonna punch way up yeah way, um, way up there's Stratus a movie Europe. on netflix called bright oh god oh god, <laughs> oh god. it's made more to talk about bright oh no <laughs> if you are not familiar with this travesty <laughs> it is set in a, a different version of earth in which there have there are elves and orcs and who even knows what else? Because they don't really know what else. In They're like the little, movie. little bug pixie things. They're a little bug the, pixie things. But like, yeah, it's, it's, it's set up with this idea, and I, I firmly believe that part of what happened that went terribly wrong with this script, one of many things, was it was probably written as as a secondary world fantasy in a modern setting, and some exec was like, "That's too confusing. Just make it L.A." So, <laughs> so it's set in L.A where there's like the elves who live in like Beverly Hills and humans who are like normal and orcs who are used as an analog for people of color very, Ooh. very badly. Um, that's not good. No. Yeah, that's a bad but, look. Um, but and, and to add on to that, the layer that the plot is that it's basically like a cop buddy comedy. It is a not, but, not, yeah. not buddy comedy, but like buddy it uses It uses the language of buddy comedy yes. like the first orc <laughs> cop who's like allowed on the force. With Will Smith. And, and with Will Smith, but then like, and then tries to like do like the info dumping of like the world history. Like there was this great war with the Dark Lord who the orcs sided with, and that's why the orcs are bad. Even though the Dark Lord was an elf, and that's like always sort of glossed over is like, why are they, there's so much wrong with the world building in terms of like, then not changing normal earth history as well so like there's a thing where like somebody's like talking about the orcs and a hispanic cop says well you're still mad at us about the alamo and i'm like so wait what the the alamo went the same and like what and like <laughs> like there, there there's 
it, I mean, it is literally that, that bit of like, we don't have time to unpack all of this. <laughs> There's like, it, it is almost a master class in how not to do world building. <laughs> there was um, a moment I had, I really like nature documentaries. I think that like watching David Attenborough is like the highlight of my week. It's fantastic. And there was this episode of something that included um, explaining how hibernation works for animals. That if an animal is hibernating, like it is, it is fine tuned. Like they, they have that long to sleep, and if it goes too long, they die because they don't have enough reserves um, built up to to last that long. And I had this moment of, so how does George R. R. Martin's weather work exactly? Because there is absolutely no way that you can have winter last that long. It doesn't work. And maybe it does work because there's some kind of like you know, magic behind the scenes that we are not introduced to. Um, and, I, and I'm not going to say it like ruins my enjoyment of reading it or anything like that, but I was like, that doesn't work at all. The, the first time that that winter happened, everything dies. The entire ecosystem collapses. It's not just about the humans saving enough food to make it through the winter. Like the, the, the way that biology as we understand it works, it doesn't work. So that was one for me that I was just like, no. <laughs> I, I have a good one that came out of your Prime Directive panel oh. yesterday, um, which was not, I mean, the Prime Directive has lots of unconsidered implications, but this was specifically we about... Could have, there could be a whole panel of there, 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 there was a whole panel about But I sort of bounced off of it onto a thought about how, how the constraints of genre sometimes create this exact problem with world building, um, because episodic television, right, we've got a central cast, and so they're doing everything, and, and they're the people we want to see on the screen, they're the people we want to hear say the exciting words. In Measure of a Man, we want to hear Patrick Stewart give that fantastic speech about Data's personhood. It's got glorious rhetoric in it, it's so, okay. Um, <laughs> But what it implies is that like all Starfleet officers have basic legal training so that they can serve as JAG officers in an emergency, which it opens up a whole can of worms. When you apply like the constraints of this episode of television to the wider in-universe world, and it just got me thinking about like, okay, so like if everyone has to do rotations while they're at Starfleet Academy and they go through engineering and medical and all these other things, 20 years later, do they remember that? Because I can tell you how much I remember from some of my college classes 15 years ago and it's have not it's even relevant anymore exactly and it's not enough to you know be making life or death decisions on certainly so like do they have to take continuing education credits like do they have to get those re-upped before the end of the starfleet fiscal year are there are there hollow suite programs for that and then someone on twitter suggested like i'm sure quark upcharges that week when everyone's trying to get their credits in and i'm like yes he would that's perfect and that'd be a great story i would love to see that but it just sort of speaks to the unconsidered implications of when you have to make a choice because of the constraints of your genre. Uh, and I'm speaking um, medium genre, not like, not like sci-fi versus fantasy genre. Sorry, I'm using genre in an academic sense because I had to teach this to people for a while. The constraints of, of that container of an episode of television can have those unintended implications whirling around elsewhere. Right, and it was, yeah. it was so funny because listening to that panel, it was so interesting how many times you know, is is this a in-world prime directive world-building problem, or is this an episodic television problem? <laughs> and as writers, I mean, we do have to, we only have a novel. We do, in fact, have to consider that short stories have their own constraints. I mean, so there are there are those considerations too. That it's not just about what you build; it's about how you package what you built. Yeah. Um, we have time for a couple more questions, I think. Um, right here in the multicolored mask. Yeah. Uh, 
This is just a quick question because it just popped into my mind. It's mainly for Cass. Uh, in your world where the magic can't be used to enchant offensive weapons, what would happen if they enchanted the offensive weapons of the enemy? Oh, that'd be really interesting. So yeah, this, get your hands on them. Like, this, this is um, if, if you have a constraint, such as you can't enchant your offensive weapons, what happens if you enchant the offensive weapons of your enemy? The additional constraint, I think, in my world is that the enchanting happens in the forging process. It is a fire forging is the, is the technique that's used for things like that. So you would have to like sneak weapons you'd fire forged into the enemy camp and trick them into using them, which would be hilarious. Like that would be a fantastic <laughs> plot point. Um, you couldn't just like cast it on them from across the battlefield. That's just not the way that, that magic works, but that's a wonderful consideration. No, I, I love that too, because it's like any rule that you make, you have to immediately think like something, some combination of like a wily three-year-old <laughs> and a teenager and like, you know, just like, okay, so how can I break it? Yeah. What would I do? Well, what do I do with this? You have to I stress. Mean, you have to stress test exactly. rule I mean, and we've talked about this before. Like, you have to like think of like what what would an eight year old who wants to cheat do with yeah. this rule? I mean, we. Um, I've run summer camps, and you, will, <laughs> you, you. It is amazing when you are playing something as simple as hide and seek, how a child will find the loopholes to then make to 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 do whatever they have to to win. So then what starts as hide and seek ends with eight children under blankets right next to what the home base is so that the moment the game starts, they jump up and claim that they have won. <laughs> because you didn't make a rule that says that that's not <laughs> If you need examples of the, the upper limits of human ambition, yeah, just watch eight-year-olds playing a competitive game. <laughs> yes. it, will, it, will, it will open your mind to all of these sneaky tactics and, and underhanded tendencies that you could possibly want. Well, and, and, you didn't say there was a rule I can't. Yeah, and, and even if there is a rule, like, if you can break it very easily, right, this has huge implications for the world that you're building. So, you know, if you want to create huge world-ending magic, Cool, but what is stopping a klutzy 13-year-old <laughs> from destroying the world? Like, if you have this kind of magic, why does your world still exist? Yeah. Like, there have, you have to, like, you know, kind of walk through those things of how many ways can we destroy it? I think we have time for perhaps one, one more, maybe? Yeah, probably. Yes, you, sir. Uh, do the three of you have any, like, all right, so our favorite reference texts or places to get information for world building or just general resource recommendation. I love reading some like weird stuff that then I, rather than like say reading a history book to like then, you know, like no, this is what it was like in, in this century or whatever. I like to like go into like weirder texts and then use that as like knocking the pinballs in my head to like create, it's like, oh, if this is true, then this. So one of my favorite books that I read that spawned so many weird ideas is a book called The Disappearing Spoon, which is about the history of the periodic table of elements. <laughs> and because it is filled with so much little things about how science was done from the ancient times all the way up to, to modern history. And in that, then shows you so many little things about what life was like in these different periods of time, and then what they thought about the world they lived in, and then how they organized that information. And so much of those little things gives you so much about you know wherever you want to place 
your world in in terms of technology or in terms of of how they how they science and what that means mm -hmm. to them and that like so that was that that was a great one for me yeah i don't think i have like a single resource because it can come from so many different places and it's going to be so dependent on what kind of story you're trying to tell and what you want to tell so my my big piece of advice is to go deep go weird and think about social history um and there are some great resources for that, uh, sometimes particular podcasts, things like that. But there is a series of books. It started with like 100 objects from around the world or something. I can't remember the exact title. Um, and it, there's a series now. They've got like 100 objects from different time periods, different locations, things like that. And they're everyday objects. They're, they're archaeological studies. But they will often trace like where it was, how it moved, who we think used it. Was it modified over time? And that speaks so much to who people are how they interact with each other, how they interact with their environment, how they interact with their everyday objects. And those are the kinds of things that get me thinking about the world building choices I need to make. If they have this particular color glass that comes from 500 miles away, how'd they get it? How did it get there? How did it get to them? How long did it take to get to them? Um, is it a precious heirloom? Is it handed down through generations? Is it a ritual object? You know, things like that. Uh, social history, more than like grand beats of history, will teach you so much about the questions you need to be asking when it comes to world building. That's the thing. I think most world building resources is not about giving you the answers. It's about Creating. forcing you, yeah, forcing you to ask the questions. I think, and and on that, um, my answer would would be I don't have one, but all of them, and all of them <laughs> are a lot more accessible than you think they are. Um, if you haven't ever you know, done a deep dive into research before. Um, museums have much of their collection online. So you know, these major museums like the Met, the British Museum, the Victoria and Albert, if you want to see actual, you know, items and how they may have been used and look at them from multiple angles, that's all online. Um, you probably have access to a university library even if you're not aware of it. Um, many universities, if you live in the county or in the city, you can get a library card for that university. Even if you can't do that, your public library has access to basically every other library in the world if your librarian is willing to try hard enough for you. They have formed these consortiums at this point that combine libraries together, and so you, you have access to things not just at your library, but at any library within that consortium, and then beyond that, any library that that consortium has ties to. So whatever it is that you want, it's probably very accessible to you in one way or another. And if you don't know how to access it, I promise that if you go into your local library and tell a librarian that you're looking for something, they are going to be over the moon excited to help you figure out where you can get it. Well, we're, and with perfect. that, I that think a, that we are yeah. at time that was a great last question. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, if you have other questions, just like find us around if here. If you want to know more about Twitter. your hosts and the fantastic books they write, all of that can be found at our website at worldbuildcast.podbeam.com. Yes. That thing. If you want to ask, <laughs> but if you just want to talk to us, you know, we're or on Twitter. Or just talk to us. We're, we're on yes. Twitter and we're stuff. Good. We're around. So. Yeah, we have a Discord community, which is awesome. Um, so if you can be found the link you, to our Discord community. Can be found. <laughs> yeah, if you enjoy geeking about world building with other people, I encourage you to join our Discord community because that is all it is. Um, it's awesome people bouncing just ideas bouncing each ideas off each other. They are so brilliant. And they keep us on our toes. So come, come help keep us on our toes. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank y'all.